Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this special live from SNA edition of the podcast is my co-host, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine, Bill Hamlet. Hello, Bill. Hey, Ward. Welcome to SNA. It's great day, to be here on day the, one. Ben Werner of USNI News labeled this spot the SNA Terrace. Right? I like so it. We got Lo- this new spot here. It's really Live from cool. the SNA Terrace, right. instead of tucked in the back like we were yeah. the last couple in the of basement. years. Yeah, it's a great place to be. It is, yeah. exactly. And uh, we have a special guest today. We've got the swear boss, the Commander of Naval Surface Forces, Vice Admiral Rich Brown, uh, who spoke this afternoon and uh, wrote a proceedings article that we published online in December called "Owning Tomorrow's Fight Today: A Surface Warfare Update." Admiral Brown, welcome to the podcast. Uh, great. Thanks for having me. It's uh, good to be here. And w- what a better place to do this than uh, the first day of uh, Surface Navy Association National. Fantastic. So you're sporting the new leather jacket. I am. Talk to us about where this came from. So uh, I was actually surprised I did not get a question about it uh, from the audience. What? But I think that they're, uh, they're used to that. We're rolling this out. Hey, look, uh, since mankind came out of the caves, uh, clothing has uh, been... Uh, a distinct way to identify elite organizations, whether you were the knight in shining armor. Uh, there's a reason why militaries wear uniforms. Uh, and the surface community is an elite uh, group of professionals. And we thought it was about time that we uh, had a distinctive uh, piece of clothing uh, to mark that. Uh, we did, a, we did a, a, a lot of work. This isn't something that uh, just happened overnight. Uh, this has been going on for well over a year. We looked at a bunch of things, and we kept coming back to a jacket. And uh, so we settled up on this. The uh, OpNav instruction was signed be, uh, before Christmas. The um, NAV admin was released just last week uh, detailing the authorization and the manner of wear, and we're really excited about it. So how long does that development process take, roughly? Well, I, we started it... Uh, well over a year ago. Okay. Uh, we do. And the contract's been let, uh, and uh, we'll probably start uh, issuing jackets in June of this year. So who's eligible to wear the jacket? Uh, it, uh, those who have a surface warfare officer pin and are a surface warfare officer. Okay. So 1110, 1115, 1117. And can you wear it on shore duty and sea we, duty? You can. You can wear it uh, on sea duty where it's going to be really useful. It's a nice, heavy jacket. It uh, uh, It's going to, especially... The, I would, there were many times on the bridge wing when I was freezing, I would have loved to have had this uh, on top of my coveralls. Or with any service uniform, as you can see, I'm wearing service dress blues right now, but I'm wearing this jacket instead of the Eisenhower jacket. Fantastic. So, sir, that, that kind of gets us, Ward and I were talking, that the feel, you know, and maybe that is a uh, manifestation of that, right? So, we were here two years ago. Uh, very much SNA 2018 was focused on... Fitzgerald, McCain, sure. that tough year, right? And and where does the surface Navy go from there? Right. The feeling that I'm picking up here this year is that the surface community has got its mojo back, that there's a tremendous amount of pride, and that there's some very cool things happening in the surface force. So from your perspective as the SWO boss, what are the top couple of things that, that so. you think are happening? So what I, what I know is we are the premier surface force in the world. We are second to none. We control the seas, uh, and we provide that combat naval power to our nation when and where we need it. Um, we have been the premier surface force for a long time. Um, and quite honestly, it was, it was time that we started acting like it, uh, and we start believing it, uh, and uh, start looking like it. 
and not just because we have a jacket, uh, but also a push within the surface fleet uh, to ensure that our ships look like we're the premier surface force uh, in the world. The bottom line is we, we have the most capable pl- uh, ships, we have the most capable weapons, but more importantly, we have the most capable officers and sailors. Uh, the way that we command uh, is probably different than uh, most countries command, and it's probably our greatest strength. Uh, you heard me talk today uh, about uh, what that means to our nation uh, and what we're, con- what we're looking at going forward. Um, we... To own tomorrow's fight today, which is the theme of the uh, SNA, the Surface Navy Association, uh, we need to stay ahead of our pair adversaries. We cannot sit back on our laurels. We clearly cannot take a step backward. Uh, and so what that means is we have to identify what our future war firing, fighting requirements are, and then we have to make the case to actually resource them. Um, so that's what we're, we're focusing on. When I took command uh, two um, years ago, it, it was a tough patch. Uh, this has been a he- uh, 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 this has been a hard, tough two years. Um, but the first message that I sent out uh, to the fleet was a P4 that was called Command, and uh, basically it told uh, commanding officers that I implicitly trust them, but with that trust comes incredible and unyielding accountability and responsibility. Uh, the second message that I sent out was the surface force command philosophy. And and as you walk around, you'll probably see uh, the mission, vision, ethos statement uh, that we exist. That is the surface force uh, philosophy. And it talks about owning the fight. Um, Those were the the two messages uh, that that we sent out. What really helped us along the way was the uh, second NAS readiness review and the comprehensive review and the and the construct that the Navy established to get after it, which was the readiness and review oversight console. There was a lot of angst and consternation when that uh, when that was put together. But I got to tell you, we actually embraced it because that was the barrier removal uh, form for things that we wanted to do. Honestly, we did not wake up in, in January of 2018 and decide, you know, we have to do training in the surface community. We had been in on a long path um, to enhancing uh, the training that had been put in place. I told the story uh, earlier this morning. When I reported to my first ship in 1985, uh, on the first day on board, I hear the word pass Ensign Brown, your presence is requested under the ASROC launcher. So I had to find someone to ask them what an ASROC launcher is. (laughs) (laughs) And then how do I get there? And they said, you can't miss it, it's in between the two stacks. And I get up there, and my captain, Captain uh, Mike Branco, uh, was sitting there, and he goes, Ensign, you're going to get the ship underway this afternoon, tell me how you're going to do that. That doesn't happen in 2020. But neither did that happen in 2017 or 2015 or 2014. We had been on a long journey of uh, building those simulators and those training devices in the surface community that we really needed for the 21st century fight. For example, a lot of our ship handling training happened at uh, MSI in Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, We took that capability and we actually built it our own and we brought it uh, to Newport, Rhode Island. Especially after the Belial report in 2012, uh, we we invested over three POM periods, over $375 million. Um, So you ask yourself, so all right, so you did all this stuff, then why in 2017 did that happen? and there were two things that uh, we focused in on, uh, and uh, which were the six common factors of a mishap ship, 
And then we really started bringing some of that, that training to the ships themselves through the Afloat Bridge Resource Management Workshops uh, with the post-major command CEO mentors. Uh, that's how, and so um, it has only been two years, but you can feel it. You can feel it when you get out into the fleet. You can feel it when you get to the, to the ships. There's been a sea change. Uh, and I am very proud of everything that's happened and what our, our team has done to, to get us to there. Um, but what I'm really excited about is that it, it, we are actually inculcating that culture of excellence that I talked about last year um, from a, one of compliance to, to excellence. Long, drawn-out answer, but it's just not, it's not a simple thing that I can, I can just answer yeah. with a so, yes or so no. One specific thing that's in your article under the rubric of building the best mariners, right. you mentioned afloat mentors, and you mentioned post-command, you know, post-major command mentors, but sure. also strategic sea lift officers right. who are reservists who come from the, the maritime, right. the, the merchant marine background, yes. right? And so a lot of, I mean, years and years of sea time now helping to to right. be afloat bridge watch standing mentors for, for watch yeah. teams. I, our CEOs love this program. Uh, it's really a, it's a two-pronged program. The, the the SSOs, uh, the strategic sea lift officers who are primarily merchantmen, uh, have their third mate, second mate, first mate, or masters. Many of them have their master's license. They come on board and they just they teach bridge resource management underway during real life operations, whether it's flight ops, boat ops, plane guard, unrep, um, and the the watch teams uh, get so much out of that. But the SSOs get so much out of it. Interesting. Because they go, wow, uh, I think uh, you know our third mates would probably uh, in 45 seconds be overwhelmed with the amount of stuff that happens on a Navy bridge. And they recognize the amount of professionalism and the amount of knowledge that actually exists with those very young watch standards. So that's the first thing. But So you think about a float bridge resource management or bridge resource management typically taught in the classroom. We're teaching it on the bridge of the ships during real life operations. The second part of that is our post-major command CO mentors are trained by our human factor engineers in organizational drift indicators. And all the organizational drift indicators are tied back into the six common factors of a mishap ship. So that post-major command CO mentor goes on board and, and they do a lot of walking around and observing and talking they give the organizational drift indicators surveys to the primarily the E5 work center supervisors. And what they're looking for is, is there organizational drift in the command that perhaps the XO, the CO, the department heads don't see? Uh, and then they spend a lot of time with the captain talking about what they're seeing. We all know forced mentorship programs do not work. Um, informal mentorship programs work incredibly well. One of the goals was that, that we suspected there would be a bond that was created between the post-major command CEO mentor and the CEO, and that relationship would continue on after. That's exactly what's happening. And our CEOs are calling up their post-major command CEO mentors because they had such a positive experience during this week underway. Say, hey, Captain, how did you do this? Um, 
And that in itself is professionalizing the force. And those mentors, are they still active duty? or are They, they are retirees? still active duty, okay. and they are serving on my staff, 3rd Fleet staff, 7th Fleet staff, Naval Surface Group, Western Pacific, Desron 31, the uh, the nuke uh, the nuke the head nuke uh, for Air Lant is uh, Juan uh, Orozco. He's a SWO. He's a mentor, uh, and I get to uh, only me and Roy Kitchener, who's Surf Lant. We sign the letter saying that this officer can be a mentor. Uh, it it's paying dividends. I'm and very how, happy. How with much it. time are they underway on a ship? They they will do probably uh, one ride, um, maybe once a quarter. Uh, we have enough where uh, they have their day jobs. You know, they're yeah. the heavy hitters for the third fleet commander. Uh, sometimes they might do one a month. Uh, where we are giving the afloat bridge resource management is during the Mariner Skills uh, training week, uh, right at the beginning of the basic phase of training. No, no better place to give that because a lot of stuff is happening. They go out and do precision anchorages. They do unreps. They do flight quarters, uh, and we can get that feedback to the CEOs right at the beginning of the basic phase so that they can bring it all the way through the basic phase into the advanced phase and the integrated and then right on deployment. And then when that OFRP cycle ends, they go in their maintenance phase, they come out, they go right through the program right over again. Gotcha. Uh, how are your, from your perspective, it's, it's now been matured for a couple of years now, the WTI program specifically for junior officers. You've got right. a number have now gone through it, are fully qualified. It sounds like from your article, you mentioned this is one of the key things that's, that, that you've been working on. Yes. And those guys are now spending more time underway. They're in their payback tours. Right? They are. So talk about that a little bit. It's game changer. Uh, it's great to see uh, a surface warfare officer, uh, Witty, and an aviation or pilot, Witty, have a discussion. Wow. I mean, you're talking real tactics there. Uh, they're figuring out stuff out that, you know, we can't figure out. It's really good. Um, they are specifically trained trained in the uh, PBED process, plan, brief, execute, and debrief. And the, and the real key of that part is the debrief portion uh, so that when you go back in and say, hey, look, Skipper, you screwed it up. I don't care what you think happened. Here's what happened. We learned that from the aviation community and, and all the work that they do out in Fallon. So as we built our SWATs and as we incorporated our witties in the SWATs, we had to have the playback capability real time. Uh, just like you, the aviation community has in Fallon. That's a game changer. Um, the very, very best are going into the WITI pro program. Um, the, they're screening at nearly 100% at the uh, selection boards because they're the very best. My son uh, is, uh, is in the process of becoming an integrated air and missile defense WITI. I didn't even know he had signed up for the program. Uh, Dave Welsh, when he was um, Smittick, I was walking down the pier from the zoom wall change of command and he goes hey is your son's name robert brown i said yeah it is he goes we just picked him to be an iamd witty i said didn't even know he applied <laughs> nice uh, so that's really good so we had we'll remind the listeners that we had a group of witties on the podcast at right. sna i want to say it was was that last year or two years ago? one year ago yeah, yeah it's probably one year ago. right right here up in one of the rooms of the hotel yeah. and so if if you are listening to the show and you haven't heard that episode Check it out. It's great. Um, it's a great episode. And, and you know, to your point, sir, what the Witties exactly are doing for out. the warfighter is incredible. So as ships are operating forward, uh, they're in the fifth fleet, and they see a particular problem or a threat, they have immediate reach back right through the Smitic, and they're asking, how do you recommend we do this? And it's the Witties that are sitting down 
figuring it out and sending it right back to the operational commander. That turnaround is within a day. And, and that's it's the same really model great. that the aviation community uses. Exactly. Because right? the witties go into the squadron, right. they're tied back into the weapon schools, and there's that constant feedback, feedback loop. loop. Right, right. Very so, exciting. It is exciting, and it's, that's a great initiative. Um, we had Acting Secretary Mudley at our Defense Forum Washington a few weeks ago, and that's sort of where he rolled out his notion of the path to 355. Right. I know some of your remarks dealt with that. So let's talk at the 30,000-foot level about what you're doing to accommodate this this demand signal uh, that's coming from the White House particularly um, and, uh, and and what what we're doing to make a plan out of that yeah. that demand signal so I, you know the 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 number 355 actually precedes uh, uh, President Trump it, it came from a forest structure assessment and uh, and it's what do we need to control the sea? So if you listen to my SNA presentation today, uh, if you know, we choose to go to the sea for a reason. We're a maritime nation. And, um, and even CNO hit, hit the high points. 90% right, of, of uh, the, the uh, population lives near the ocean. 70% is covered by the ocean. 99% of the internet, underwater cables. Um, we rigorously and vigilantly patrol the seas because we believe in the maritime commons. We believe in the in uh, the economic prosperity of not only this nation, but all um, uh, uh, free nations. Um, and to do that, you have to have, presence matters. And that presence uh, requires ships. And then when presence is, in itself is not enough, and the uh, and you have to fight. You have to understand where your who your peer competitors or near peer competitors are, uh, and that drives what uh, the number of ships. Now, what is uh, the number of ships? Three fifty five, three forty five, three fifty five plus three sixty five. I, I don't know. Are we going to count unmanned, medium, unmanned, large in the force? Uh, the, the force thing you heard CNNO said no right now because it's all conceptual. Um, but what we do know is the number somewhere around there, uh, because of the threat and because of the size of the oceans and because of our desire to uh, uh, positively influence the control of the seas. Um, so that's that's where we're going to drive to. Here we have to balance that against. Um, we have to be so now as the lead TICOM, What do I worry about? I have to be able to man it. I have to be able to train it. And I have to be able to equip it. And so it's a balancing act. So as you grow, you must also grow all that other stuff that goes with it. Uh, because if not, you can have a bunch of ships. But if you don't have the right uh, people on board with the right training and the right uh, logistics support to all of it, then you create a hollow force, correct? Um, we can get there, but there has to, has to be large decisions made at, at a higher level than I um, and on what is... Is the is the imperative? Is the maritime imperative to outmatch our competitors? Actually, there then we have to fund it. So, what are those large decisions? I know well, you, it I'm does, not asking you to go above your pay right. grade, but well, just but, uh, so people I mean, listening understand it, what's it, in play. It, uh, you know, one third, one third, one third probably isn't the right answer. Uh, it wasn't the right answer in the mid '80s. You heard the CNO uh, lay it out. Uh, I and laid it out with the reserve community the this morning. NDAA, Air right. Force, Army, That's right. Navy. Well, I laid right. it out with the reserve uh, flags uh, this morning. 
And uh, but, but the CNO did a great, better, much better job. You know, when we were building the fleet in the 80s, uh, Navy's percentage of the budget was 38%. It's 34% today. So uh, it, it, it has to be an imperative. And if it's the right imperative, then, uh, then we have to fund it. So to that end, you got a question about this. And then CNO got a question about it from the Australian. Right. Right. Also a maritime nation. Uh, and then there were some questions uh, in the N95, N96 afterwards uh, to, to change that one-third, one-third, one-third to perhaps get a couple more percentage for right. for the Navy or Department of the Navy. There's a, a, a lesson or a, um, a message that has to be sold to the taxpayer, right, to the Correct. American people that, hey, your livelihood, uh, your job, your future depends on the, the maritime uh, essence of the na- of this nation, That's right? right. And, th- and that depends on the Navy. Uh, so, what to what extent? Going you- all the way back to the Barbary right. pirates, all the way back, yeah. But- uh, and that's when we first said, "Hey, this controlling we, we, of the seas is a real a thing yes. because we are a maritime right. nation. Our livelihood depended upon so, it." To what extent do you get to tell that story to the American public? So I tell it whenever I can, and I think that uh, we are out there telling it, uh, and it's starting to coalesce. The uh, and what really helped was when you look at the national security strategy and the national defense strategy, they are maritime strategies. They really are. They yeah. really, really are. And, and, and so from the highest levels, we're telling the story that this is an, a, an imperative and uh, it, it's, a, it's a maritime fight. So what are, what are the, again, back to what Secretary Motley was saying about a plan. We, we have a number. It's sort of ironic to my eye that we come up with the number and then we're getting beat about the head and shoulders by some pundits and others right. about not hitting the number that we came up with, yeah. right? That's sort of how the dynamic has been shaped. And it's, I'm glad you reminded the world about it. Oh, by the way, that's our number. That's not right. somebody else's number. But Secretary Modley copped to the fact that we don't have a plan. And he assembled um, a, an offsite at the Naval Institute to sort of start to step off on that plan. I know you, you didn't yeah. get to go because of the issues around uh, the most recent events in Iraq. Um, so how are you feeling and what is your role? I know you said, you know, man yeah. trip, uh, train and equip the force once we have ships. But how are you feeling about the the way forward to the existence of a plan? Uh, I feel strong about it. I think that you're going to see that, uh, and it's a little premature to talk about it. Um, and quite honestly, I, I haven't really seen the details of the plan, but uh, PB21 will roll out here in February, but in as that rolls out, the integrated Navy uh, force structure assessment will also roll out. And I think that that will help inform, I, not, I don't think, I know that will help inform and, 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 and show the way forward. To go back to the article, though, what am I focusing on? I laid out this, there's really three lines of effort. So for, for me as the lead TICOM, and then for Roy Kitchener as uh, Surfland, our number one priority is to provide Combat ready ships with battle mounted crews um, to the number of fleet commanders, and that is the current readiness. I have to, I remain focused on current readiness uh, to make sure that you know ships are deploying fully manned, they're fully certified, and uh, we're not leaving any redundancy on the pier. So you we're, just said fully manned. Fully manned, 9295, 92% fit, 95% fill, and that's okay. the bill that's authorized. And quite honestly. Uh, we're buying nearly 100% of the bill is authorized of the requirement. 
And you um, also mentioned in your remarks earlier this afternoon, CASREP free. CASREP free. Uh, so ships are deploying and... and at near CASREP free. Okay. Uh, and those CASREPs that don't clear require, require my approval. And it's some things that, hey, we're going to get that in the next depot. It doesn't have any warfighting uh, uh, impact on the ship at all. But it's something that we need to fit, uh, fix because it's not within design specs. Um, we're doing really good at it. Uh, we've hit a number of ships CASREP free, a lot, a ton of ships going out with one ship, one CASREP or two CASREPs. Uh, Montgomery deployed CASREP free when she um, did her crew swap in Singapore. Uh, she was CASREP free. We, we kind of treated it like a new deployment. Gabriel Giffords went with two CASREPs. Stockdale went with zero CASREPs. The entire Boxer ARG deployed with zero CASREPs. Uh, now, and, and that's not a paper CASREP free, like, okay, clear all the CASREPs so we can say that we did it. <laughs> yeah. No, all the stuff was working on the ships, and that's, uh, that's huge. The second uh, line of effort is, um, you know, uh, with, with the, the vigor and, and the, um, of what we've put into Mariner skills training and assessment over the last couple of years, we are continuing on that path. Um, you know, with the help of Congress and uh, H1 leadership, Navy H1 leadership, significant improvements into the training programs and those simulators and things that we need um, uh, to put in place. And I talked about the Maritime uh, Mariner Skills Training Centers, the integrated na navigation seamanship and ship handling trainers that are going to be coming on uh, in the in the not too distant future. Um, that's still there. Although we're not calling mission complete, I'm very satisfied on the path that we're at. at. And wow, we're seeing real improvement already. We've graduated 461 ensigns from the JOD course, and the COs are saying, can I send my current ensigns through that course? Because those ensigns are showing up with a level of confidence and understanding um, that we, we haven't been able to provide before. So I, I'm incredibly uh, excited about that. We're going to continue on that path. So the third line of effort then is to take that same um, rigor that we put to mariner skills training. We now need to apply it to maritime, warf uh, maritime uh, warfare training uh, to make sure that we're pacing the threat and actually staying ahead of the threat. So I've assigned that mission to SMITIC, no better place, uh, especially with uh, warfare tactics instructors. And uh, they're leading the Maritime Warfare Officer Tactical Training Continuum. Uh, and we're going to revamp it uh, from ensign to major command, just like we did for ship handling. Uh, in a couple of the presentations this afternoon, the Surface Development Squadron in San Diego yes. was mentioned, that it was just established this past year. Right. So there's a new Commodore there. The three Zumwalt-class yep. ships all fall under that Commodore. There's a great deal of, of developing tactics yep. and capabilities, right? We, What's we, recognize, we recognize that as new capabilities come online, for example, unmanned, um, we didn't have a place to put that stuff. But more importantly, we didn't really have a true place to experiment. That's what Surf Devron will do. It's not, you probably saw the reporting earlier uh, this month, Admiral Grady uh, assigned the task to Surf 4 to develop the concept of operations for unmanned operations. Well, that work went directly to Surf Devron 1. They were already doing that. Um, and uh, it, wow, it, I mean, they're in their infancy. They're not even at IOC, uh, let alone FOC. But uh, what they're going to bring to the fight is huge. Uh, so go, go look at Subdevron and you can see where we're starting to mirror uh, what they are doing. Got it. And uh, we had the uh, 
the CEO of the Zumwalt, in the January issue of Proceedings. Yes. We have you, thank you, for, for uh, writing in right. into the Asked and Answered column, sure. which is in our in the and back. And I talked about Ernie and Evans you, today. You mentioned this, Ernie this Evans morning, today and the USS Johnston yep. at the Battle of Leyte Gulf. You and the CNO both used that example. We did not you didn't collude. coordinate that. We okay. did not collude. <laughs> Even though you're both from Lowell, Massachusetts. That's right. And we both, did you see the picture that I put up? We I got did. our nomination from the same congressman. Yes, yes. And we're standing there together. It's That's amazing. Fantastic. Very nice. He's uh, doing a little bit better than I am, though. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, how about the op-tempo piece? How are you feeling about the demands we're making in the face of some of these crises that we're working through? Uh, are you comfortable with the the op-tempo that we're demanding uh, of our force. I am, uh, but more importantly, what I'm more comfortable with is that uh, we reestablish the fire breaks before, between force generation and force employment. Um, and, you know, before we might have gotten down the path where we were uh, sacrificing some force generation requirements and must-do to hit the force employment. We're not doing that now. Uh, we don't waive. Uh, like I said, the ships are going out fully manned, fully certified, uh, with the uh, material condition that they need to go do the mission. So there could uh, be a demand signal from 7th Fleet or 5th Fleet, for meet. example, and if, and if a ship isn't ready to go, you won't send it? We don't do it. We don't do it. Now, we've got a lot of questions to answer with the ship. Yeah. Not ready have there, have there been examples? Uh, there have been examples. There have been uh, material. Uh, I'm not going to go into details, but okay. uh, there have been material casualties uh, where we, perhaps we might have sailed that ship before and we just we decided, no, we're not going uh, to... The, that risk does not belong to the CEO of the ship. That risk belongs to the, the PAC fleet commander. So these are some uh, of the lessons that came out of the they, CR. Very much so. Uh, going uh, to sea with a one ship screw that, and that kind of you stuff. Know, was, not, um, was not tier one basic phase certified. Uh, there was a desire uh, to use that ship for something, and that was a discussion that took place between the two three-stars, uh, and the four-star was the deciding factor, uh, and the ship did not do the mission. So we have not waived any requirements. So we've heard a couple things, and the CNO mentioned it, uh, that this coming summer, 2020, there's going to be a large-scale exercise at sea, right? This is bigger than a COM2X or a JTFX. Uh, this is, I, I, it sounds to me a little bit in, in line with what Admiral Swift was trying to do in terms of building the at-sea exercise where you've got uh, a, tier, a, a peer-level competitor op right. for, right? Uh, can you give us some preview of what that'll look like? Um, I, I'll leave that over to the operational uh, folks, uh, but you know, you know, we've kind of reinstituted the fleet battle problems again. Uh, we've been doing that for the last uh, few years, uh, paying real dividends. And then, as we looked at it, you know, without getting specifics of what we'll actually do into the large scale exercise, you know, looking at well, let's do what we're doing in fleet battle problems, and, and we'll bring it to the larger scale. So taking uh, a fleet battle problem sure, and, and sure. on steroids a little Pretty bit. Much. Got it. Yeah. Cool. Uh, you know, across fleets. Gotcha. Yep. So your staff is pointing at their watches. Yeah, they're the busiest uh, man they, they're uh, the, in the, the, the hook. But that's so good. will we see you at West in San Diego? Uh, absolutely. Out there? Okay, so uh, I will be out there, this. and uh, maybe we can do this again. I'm yes, that'd be great. we'll have the and, podcast uh, rig out there, yeah. and we'll, we'll do some follow-ups. Great. So thanks for the okay, time, sir. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Bill and Ward, appreciate it. Great out here. All right, that'll do it with the ship boss. And remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.